0: The Bible reading for today is coming from the book of Micah, chapter 5. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she, who is in labor, gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will teach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace." When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men. They will rule the land of Assyria with a sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Abby. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that you speak to us in your word. We pray that as we open now this passage from Micah, you would apply it your word to our lives by your spirit, that we might be taught, encouraged, rebuked, corrected, trained in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought I might do things a little differently this morning by starting at the end, the end of time, that is. When all battles are done and all victories won, when this present evil age is over and there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? The longer we live in this world, uh, the longer our hearts yearn for that final day. So that's where I want to start this morning, on that final day when the heavens resound with the roar of a great multitude, worshipping the Lord together and proclaiming as we read in Revelation, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. And if you can imagine the scene as it will unfold, there'll be That glorious praise, the choirs, the singing, the gathering of the people, and the shouts of the assembly are like lifting the roof off the heavens until suddenly there's a hush. For now all eyes are on you, on the bride of Christ. Here comes the bride, as it were. And she is so beautiful that you can scarcely believe it. The church is now clothed in the pure radiance of God without any stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. She has made herself ready and she is holy and blameless, prepared as a bride for her husband. I want, to, I want you to picture that scene and see yourself in it this morning. This is the, a picture of the, the church of the redeemed with people from every tribe and language and nation gathered and united in love for the Lord our God. Friends, if Jesus is your king, then this is your future. He'll be yours forever, and you'll be the apple of his eye, the bride of the lamb. This is our future, and I want you to be excited by that future And look forward to it as we come now to treasure God's word before us today in Micah chapter 5. From the humbling of God's people in verse 1, to the restoration of the king in verse 4, to the gathering of a faithful remnant and then the cleansing of their hearts and minds and souls, everything is being done to prepare a people for the Lord, to prepare, as it were, the bride for her husband on that great day when God's glory is revealed. Then the kingdom will be restored and God's people will live securely in the land. This is a Christmas promise and we're being called to rejoice in it today. So I've got just two points to share with you. It's a very straightforward message today. Two points, the promise and the provision. The promise and the provision. The promise is in verses 1 to 5a and it's about God's promise of a king He will be born in the town of Bethlehem, and he will be our peace. So the promise is about the birth of a king. And then secondly, the provision is about God's redeeming work in our lives, and it's ongoing. Not only must he save us from our enemies, but he must save us from ourselves. He must cleanse us, restore us, redeem us, wash us, heal us, to make us ready for that day when he will receive us into his loving arms. The provision is about the outworking of God's grace in our lives. And it's part of the Christmas promise that we're being invited to enjoy this morning. And so we come now to one of the most important sections in the book of Micah. It's the part where God tells us the exact location of the Messiah's birth some 700 years before it happened. Imagine that. 700 years before it happened we have a prophecy that identifies the actual town or village where the Messiah will be born. And it goes on to give us some details of the Messiah's life and ministry too. So, for example, he will rule over Israel and the nations and he will establish God's peace to the ends of the earth. Not only that, but it appears his origins are somewhat mysterious. So literally in verse 2, his origins, we're told, are from days of eternity or from ancient times, from days of eternity? Who can this king be whose whose origins are mysterious and from days of eternity? A man who is ageless in some way, perhaps even divine. Well, it has to be Jesus, doesn't it? But as we come to verse 1 we see that there is a call to arms. And there's a shocking announcement here in verse 1 because we're told the church will be besieged and this king will be treated with contempt. And so we read in verse 1, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, or literally, O daughter of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. Imagine if this was King Charles or Xi Jinping being struck on the cheek. It'd be World War 3, wouldn't it? To be struck on the cheek is an ultimate insult. To be struck on the cheek with a rod suggests that some authority or power is striking the king. It represents a loss of face and it's really quite outrageous. The point is, this is not at all how you would expect the Messiah to be treated, the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, being struck on the cheek with a rod. But in verse 1, that's exactly what we're told will happen. It says they will strike him on the cheek with a rod so that it will seem that he's been defeated and humiliated. But as we read on we find in verse 4 that he will arise victorious. We're told that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. So there is going to be an amazing reversal. So yes, the Messiah will win, but not in the way we expect. And this is all part of a prophecy that's 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Well, in this regard, King Hezekiah, one of the kings in Micah's day, was a forerunner of Christ. Prophecies can sometimes have multiple applications, a closer-to-home application and then its ultimate fulfillment. And Hezekiah's reign is an example of this. So, for example, the Assyrians came and destroyed all the fortified cities of Judah in 701 BC. They came and they devastated the land until only Jerusalem was left They besieged the city and they publicly mocked King Hezekiah. But then Hezekiah became a kind of Christ, a type of Christ. He humbled himself and he prayed and God saved him from his enemies. You could say it was almost a resurrection experience for his kingship and for Jerusalem and the people of God. Hezekiah was vindicated by God, and he went on to lead his people in a time of relative peace. So this was a foreshadowing of the gospel in the time of Micah and the time of King Hezekiah. But even at his best, King Hezekiah was just a a forerunner of the true Messiah, who is Christ. So let's now focus in on this prediction of the Messiah's birth in verses 2 to 5. Because this is where God reveals pretty much the exact location and circumstances of the very first Christmas. In verse 2 we're told, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you will come for me, come for God, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Do you believe that God is able to announce beforehand the precise plans and purposes of his will? Well, you should, because this is a perfect example of it. One of the uh, most encouraging uh, tours that I ever took our youth group on some years ago when it was um, part of CPC Burwood um, was the Dead Sea Scrolls had been brought to Sydney and we took a whole group of teenagers Uh, to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they had uh, a prophecy from Isaiah open. It was the prophecy in in which we're told that he will be uh, crucified and and taken, uh, the the punishment that uh, was on us would be upon him. And so to see that passage and have it dated, you know, 50 B.C., Um, It was very, very encouraging to be able to show the teenagers that this prophecy about the sufferings of Christ was actually dated before his birth. And it's the same here. We have a prophecy about the Messiah, which was written 700 years before his birth. How much more detail do you need? It's like one of those Google Earth applications. You know, the way it zooms down all the way from space right down to street level. Show me the place of the Messiah's birth, you say, and this is what you get. First, you zoom down from space to the region of Judah, and then you zoom down to the locality of Ephrathah, and then finally down to the place itself, Bethlehem. 700 years before it happened, we're being told where to find the location of the very first Christmas. I think that's pretty amazing. And it increases my faith in the promises of God to see that it's so. I mean, there's nothing vague in this. There's nothing you could really misinterpret or confuse. It seems to me either Jesus was born in Bethlehem or he's not the Christ. Either he's born in Bethlehem or he's not the Christ. And conversely, might I say, anyone who claims to be the Christ and is not born in Bethlehem must be a fake and a fraud because the location of his birth is so clearly given. This is the place of the Messiah's birth. God isn't trying to confuse us here. He isn't playing games or trying to trick us. Even in Jesus' day, the teachers of the law understood this perfectly well, and it's all laid out for us. And I want to show you from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, if we can have that uh, reading. It says here, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, they're quoting from Micah, aren't they? That's Micah's prophecy. And they knew what it meant. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. Bethlehem was to be the place to find him because Bethlehem was named in Micah's prophecy and Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David. David's father, Jesse, was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah. So the fact this prophecy goes back to Bethlehem and picks up the story from there tells us that God's plan is going to be to raise up a second David, as it were, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who, according to the promise, will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And this too is all part of the Christmas promise. In effect, God is saying no to the royal city of Jerusalem. It's there in the background in the picture there. No to the city of Jerusalem, to the shallowness of her ruling elite. No to the godless idolatry of her people, their witchcraft, their spells, their carved images and their sacred stones. No to Jerusalem, the royal city. Even in Micah's day, it was evident that God's plan was to start over with a new Israel, a new covenant, a new king. And that's why Jesus was born in the humblest of circumstances, to the humblest of parents, not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph were descendants of David, and they had to go to Bethlehem from Nazareth. They had to go to Bethlehem because of a Roman census that was being taken at just the right time. And they were enrolled in there. The, the, the books of King David for that, uh, for that census. And so that's why they went there. But now what will be the circumstances of the Saviour's birth? Well, we are given some indication of this in verse 3. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites." So then Israel will be abandoned by God for a time of judgment. And this happened from Malachi in the Old Testament to the time of John the Baptist in the New Testament. For over 400 years there was no new prophecy in the land. There was a drought of God's word until John the Baptist then began to call people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then she who was in labor gave birth to a son and named him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so we see the gospel in Old Testament terms coming out in verse 4, these wonderful words, a promise of the good shepherd. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. A king, a shepherd king. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. It's a Christmas promise, isn't it? It's beautiful and it's powerful and it's good and we need to lay hold of it as his people and recognise what God is doing in our midst even as we sing carols and proclaim the hope that we have as God's people. You see, these promises are still being fulfilled In our lives today, in the life and ministry that God is doing in and through us by his word and by his spirit, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the king of kings. He is the one whose origins are from of old, for he is truly God with us, Emmanuel. And so today we believe that his kingdom and his peace will endure forever, and we already have a foretaste of it because we've come to know him as our saviour and our king. But for Micah, well, none of these things were going to happen any time soon. In fact, they weren't going to happen for something like 700 years. As I've been saying, that's 700 years of waiting for Christmas. You say to kids, you know, how many days to Christmas? Oh, 10 days to Christmas. Well, that's quite a while. Oh, well, you've got 700 years to wait for Christmas and then we can open the present. I don't think that would go down so well, would it? I wonder how many of us, in fact, would be prepared to wait just seven months to see answered prayer, let alone 700 years. I think the lesson is don't underestimate the faith of the saints of old. They stayed humble and hopeful for many, many years in spite all of life's trials and tribulations. So let's learn from their example today to be faithful and prayerful in these increasingly uncertain times that we live in. Well, that brings me to my next point about the provision of God's grace, because this is how God loves us and redeems us to himself, despite our sinful ways. First, he saves us from our enemies. In verses 5 and 6, then he redeems us as a remnant to himself, in verses 7 to 9. And then he purifies us from our sin and idolatry in verses 10 to 15. And so he renews our first love for him. It was Jesus who said to Paul, remember my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And sometimes we feel that weakness, we do. But we have a king who is strong and his promises are sure. And that's why Paul delighted to boast in his weaknesses, because he knew the truth about himself and he knew the truth about his Saviour. And so he would say, God's grace is sufficient for me. My Lord is in control, and he is able to save completely those who put their trust in him. So in the second book of Corinthians, he says, in response to Jesus' words, he says, Therefore, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses. In insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Well, if you're feeling weak today, if you have the Lord as your Saviour, you are strong in Christ. It's an old lesson, but we have to keep on learning it as God's people over and over again. I can't do this by myself. Yet I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's one of the paradoxes of faith, isn't it? We know our weakness, our inability. And yet there is this promise of a saviour who works in us and through us to his glory and for our joy. Well, Micah understood this outworking of God's will and purpose in our lives. In his day, it was the Assyrians who invaded the land. After that, it was the Babylonians, the land of Nimrod. It's mentioned in verse 6. Then came the Medes and the Persians. After them, it was the Greeks and then the Romans. One invading empire after another, raging and rampaging through the land. There have always been enemies of the church who oppose God's people and oppose the gospel. We live in such a world today where increasingly it is hard for Christians to proclaim and live out their faith in the workplace or at the university. But then, when we are weak, then we are strong. For the truth is, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And then the question is who then will be saved? And the answer is clearly in our passage today that a remnant will be saved. For not all Israel is true Israel and not everyone who goes to church is a Christian. It may sound like bad news but only if you think people are good and deserve to be saved. Then the gospel seems a little unreasonable but the Bible makes perfectly clear that we in our sinfulness are in rebellion against God and in need of a saviour for we cannot save ourselves. So, in fact, this is good news that God should save any at all, that in his love he should redeem to himself a people saved by grace and not by works so that no one can boast. Well, did you notice the remnant of Jacob in verse 7 is the same as the remnant of Jacob in verse 8? There is a remnant that will be saved, and yet notice the reactions to this remnant by the world is very different depending on which uh, perspective you take. To some people, it seems our message and ministry, the ministry of the gospel, is a blessing. And we are to them like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. And it's a beautiful picture of of blessing. And yet for others, in verse 8, we are like a a young lion among flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue So what's going on? Are we a curse or a blessing? I guess it depends on where you stand with the Lord. That's why the Apostle Paul calls Christians the aroma of Christ. It's the same idea that we are with the one message both reviled but also received depending on how God is working in the hearts of those with whom we speak. So the Apostle Paul says, we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, but to the other, the fragrance of life. To one we are a young lion, mauling and mangling as it goes. To the other, we are like dew from heaven, like showers on the grass. And that's how it has to be if we are to be serious about following Jesus. We, we need to be both gentle in spirit and yet fearless in deed. We must be the aroma of Christ, both to those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. That means we mustn't be ashamed of the gospel, the hope of Christmas that we proclaim at this season. And Let us remember too that Jesus is both the lion and the lamb He's the lamb that lies down, his life for us, but he's also the lion of Judah. And as a lamb and a lion are symbols of our king, so we as his people must be both gentle and courageous if we're to be effective as ambassadors for Christ in a sinful and fallen world. For yes, we do have this hope in the Lord Jesus, which looks forward to the victory that Christ will bring on that great day in verse 9. It says, your hand, and I think this is speaking of Jesus as Lord and as God, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. And then the celebrations We'll begin. As the angel says in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb, and he added these words of God, these are the true words of God. And so we come to the final part of God's provision of grace in the lives of his people whereby he now purifies us from our sin and idolatry. Over and over again God acts decisively to cut off or destroy the offending behavior From the lives of his people. And so we read these words On that day declares the Lord. I will destroy, or actually the word is cut off, and I've put that in there. I will cut off your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will cut off your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will cut off your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles and demolish your cities, I will take vengeance and in anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Well, those are strong words, aren't they? I think Christmas is both, it's a celebration, it's an invitation to come to know the Lord, but it's also a warning that if we reject this king then we will find ourselves cut off. Sometimes God makes peace by a process of subtraction. He takes away the things you or I think we want the most, things that actually stand between you and him. Perhaps you're chasing after money or success or love or power or popularity, whatever it is, when all of a sudden God cuts off your health or cuts off your career, or cuts off your family, or cuts off your pride and exposes the folly of your prayerless, careless, self-reliant ways. Our passage today also contains this warning, that God will tear down the strongholds of your heart until nothing is left except him. But Turn to him and he will be your peace as he promises in verse 5. Then you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands, but you will worship him only as your Lord and your God. And so we come back to where we first began on that great day where a numberless multitude of God's people will be gathered around the heavenly throne and the bride of Christ will step forward adorned in garments of righteousness and praise and the joy of God's people will overflow for Bethlehem and the bride when the promise of Christmas is fulfilled and we will dwell with our King securely in the land forever and ever. I didn't realise when I put this preaching roster together that in the providence of God, Micah chapter 5 would be the passage we look at in the week before Christmas. But isn't isn't it just a perfect passage to prepare us for next Sunday when we do celebrate the arrival of our King and Saviour? What does our passage today teach us? First of all, it reminds us of the Christmas promise that God has provided a king from the stock of Jesse, the father of David, who was born in Bethlehem, and he has become our peace. And that's why we sing, and we're going to sing in a moment actually, but we sing, don't we? Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. But wait, there's more. Not only is there the promise of the king, But this passage also points us forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb, to that wonderful day when God's purpose in our lives will be fully and finally revealed. It's something we ought all to look forward to. And so again, we sing these words, the second verse of that song. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Everything in our passage today is preparing the church as a bride to receive her King. And even now he is calling us to renew our faith and our hope in him as his people. He is preparing us for works of service that he has prepared in advance for us to do. He is sending us out into his world as the aroma of Christ, both to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And he is continually cutting away all those idols in our hearts that cause us guilt and shame. This is God's work of redeeming grace. And he is continuing it today, that we might be ready to receive our king as a bride made perfect for her husband, that we might enjoy sweet communion with him forever and ever, age without end. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the Christmas promise and for expanding our understanding of what it means. This is a promise that you've made from eternity past, revealed through your prophets and fulfilled in your son, that we, of all people, might become your children, your people, but more than that, your bride as a church, redeemed and purified without stain or wrinkle or any blemish. And so we look forward to that great and wonderful day when we will see you face to face and every tear and mourning and crying and pain will pass away as you have promised. So we thank you this day for your love and your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.